Okay, so I'm glad you're here. And uh, I want to um, I want to touch on some things, um, some Torahs from Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach, Zecher Tzadok Lebrocha, and on Parshas Baloscha. This is one of the most amazing Parshas in the whole Torah. Like every, it's just it's jam packed with all sorts of events and. Um, and it begins with, with the commandment, uh, Hashem telling Aaron to light the menorah. So, so Rav Shlomo says on a very, very deep level, in the name of the Alexander Rebbe, and he, he, he brought this down because he said that this was the site of his Rebbe, the Varka Rebbe. And, um, you know, one of, the great, one of the great sort of like collections of Jews in Jewish history, the, you had the Alexander Rebbe, learning from the Vorka Rebbe, his Rebbe, also known as the Silent Rebbe. By the way, I heard from Reb Shlomo one time that, um, that the Vorka Rebbe, he, he, very few times, only a few times, he would say over Torah publicly, but he was really one of the greatest Hasidic masters. And um, he would have Fabrengans, right? So a Fabrengan is like a Hasidic gathering where people, you know, they gather around a table and... Um, and they'll sing different, uh, you know, deep melodies, you know, that we call them nigunim. Uh, a a, a nigun is, is, is very intense. Like, I once heard the definition of a nigun is, it has no beginning and it has no end. Right? And um, it doesn't have any words, so you can sort of like put whatever feelings that you're going through. You know, have you ever had this experience where, you know, R.E.M., that band, I think is a good example of this where you couldn't understand any of the words whatsoever. But the melodies and the harmonies were so evocative that whatever you're feeling, you put on them. And then every once in a while, I've made the mistake of actually reading the lyrics. <laughs> and I'm like, that's what he's singing about? You know what I mean? It's, like a, it's always such a disappointment, you know, because sometimes even, you know, you know in, the, in sort of the rock style where you can't understand anything that he's saying, even though he's singing words, it's still like a nigan because you have no idea what he's saying. So you can still sort of attach your own emotions to it. So if a bringing is very, a very beautiful thing, so you're, you're, you're singing. By the way, singing in general is, is, is awesome because it says basically, like in terms of like the, 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 the way that the heavens are, are mapped out, that the, the heichel, the palace of, of song, is right next to the palace of tshuva, of return to God. So that's why a lot of times when you're singing and everything like that, you get this stirring inside of you to want to connect back with Hashem. Because, heavenly speaking, these two regions like are adjacent to each other. And the Moshetz Rebbe, who's Moshetz is known for its, uh, for its music, for its singing, and, and, and Reb Shlomo was very, very influenced by Moshetz, and, and a lot of the great melodies that, that Reb Shlomo sang, I mean... Almost all of them are Reb Shlomo's, but, but, a, but a, a, a choice bunch are, are Mojitzer uh, Nigunim. So, anyway, the, the Mojitzer Rebbe said that, no, he says, people say that the palace of song and the palace of return are right, right next to each other. He says, I say the palace of song is the palace of return. Right? So that it's actually the exact same place, which is an awesome, it's an awesome Torah. And you see that in this week's Parsha, by the way. This, I'm just telling you a simple Rashi. We haven't gotten to Reb Shlomo's stories yet. But just a simple Rashi, which is not so simple, you know, is that it's talking about the sanctification of the Levium. 
So the Levium was that, that tribe that were sort of um, helping out in the, in the Mishkan and later on in the, in the, in the Beis Migdash, the tabernacle, and then later on in the Holy Temple. They were assisting the, the, the Kahanim, you know, with the, with the offerings and everything like that, but they were also in charge of the music. And you see, right in the beginning of this week's Parsha, I haven't got it in front of me, so I can't quote you the word exactly, but right in the very beginning, a very key word is used two times in a row in the Chumash. And it's talking about levels of, they, they had to be sanctified. So they, you know, they were all put in the mikvah and their clothes were put in the mikvah and they were, you know, they were elevated and all, all sorts of things that were done to the Levium to really sort of, just to raise them up to this level where they'd be able to, on a soul level, be this sort of like, a, you know, unbelievable resource for the Jewish people. But, but this word is mentioned twice. And Rashi points out that one of the mentions of this word is that they were that their song was sanctified, that they were sanctified for their ability to, to, to lead the music as well. So in other words, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take it lightly, this idea of singing, because even that actually needed a level of sanctification, a whole process for the Levium to be prepared to play that role. So, so it's, it's serious business. Okay, so a Fabrengen, what's a Fabrengen? So they're singing and they're telling Torahs and, you know, uh, a lot of times they have a l'chaim there too, you know. And all of these things are, are, are designed to sort of maximize this, this sort of like uh, experience. So anyway, uh, so the Vorka Rebbe, I heard from Reb Shlomo, would, um, during the time that normally speaking, the, the Rebbe or the, the leader of the Fabrengen would say over Divrei Torah, he would just look at one of his Hasidim. He would just look at him. And, and the chassid would just, you know, break down crying or, or just hear everything that he needed to hear. So he was known as the silent Rebbe. So you had the Vorka Rebbe who was best friends with the Kutska Rebbe. And you had the Alexander Rebbe, you had the Ger Rebbe there, you had Reb Simcha Banim of Shisk, you had the Ishbitzer Rebbe there, and more Rebbe's, they were all there, all like in the same community, all in the same yeshiva. This is like, I mean, you can't even imagine, you can't even imagine. They were, they were, they were headquarters in, the, in this place called Kutsk, was the name of a village. And people used to sing a song. It was like a folk song that people would sing. A fire burns in Kutsk. You know? Ah, okay. So, so, so the Alexander Rebbe said, what does it mean when Hashem told Aaron to light the menorah? It means Hashem was instructing Aaron to light a fire in the heart of every Jew that every single Jew has to be on fire. So what does it mean? What does it mean? So Reb Shlomo brings up like a great, a great question. Now, before we get into it, let's just say, just, you have to understand that a lot of times when you learn different sources and everything like that, the one who's teaching assumes that you know certain things. And so he, he sort of jumps into the middle. Okay? But, but for our purposes, we can't assume anything. So, Let's just give you the, the baseline assumption, and then I'll tell you what Reb Shlomo says. 
The baseline assumption is that everything comes from Hashem. Absolutely everything comes from Hashem. So now that you know that, now we'll jump in. So Reb Shlomo says, how do you know, how can you tell the difference in your own life when something that you hear is directly from God and something is just from someone else? Right? Because even within everything coming from Hashem, we have levels, right? And as I've quoted many times, my teacher has said to me many, many times, you know, that far we don't go. Right? In terms of you, you have to be able to develop a piece of Torah and everything like that, but sometimes you can take it to a place where it just no longer applies. Right? So sometimes, you know, you can say, well, that person said X to me, but, you know something, so, so that was from Hashem, but you know something, it was said in such an ugly way, that far we don't go. That far we don't go. So how do you know, how do you know, how can you make that distinction? So, Rabbi Shlomo says in the name of the Alexander, he says that if someone, a lot of times someone wants to improve you, and how do they improve you? It's like they take a knife and they cut you this way, and they cut you that way, and they tell you, okay, don't do this, and don't do that, and don't be this, and don't be that, and now, look what I've done, I've made a better Jew out of you. Right? So, that's one level, right? So, so, in the, in the account of Aaron lighting the menorah, the Torah says something which all the commentators jump on. And, and Reb Shlomo says there are thousands of explanations of what this phrase means. Rashi brings it. Which is that it says in the account that Hashem told Aaron to light the menorah a certain way, and then it says, Aaron did so. So, all right, first of all, it seems like, well, if God told Aaron to do it, of course Aaron did it. So why did the Torah even have to say he did it? So Rashi explains, the reason why it says that Aaron did that thing is to show you that he didn't change it. So now everyone wants to explain the Rashi. What does it mean Aaron didn't change? Okay, now let me cycle through a few of the famous explanations just very quickly, of what it means that Aaron didn't change. And then we're going to get to what the Alexander says, which is very beautiful and relates to the idea that we've been developing. But just as an aside, one explanation of Aaron didn't change is that Aaron, even though he had this exalted position of Klein Gadol, high priest of the entire Jewish people, right, which was a very, it was a very exalted position, Moshe himself was supposed to have it. And it says that, only because Moshe argued with Hashem by the burning bush for seven days did Moshe lose that position. So, I mean, this was really like a... This is a remember, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was that, that porthole between heaven and earth. And Aaron was overseeing it. So who's ever seen the connection between heaven and earth on an ongoing basis, that's, that's a serious position, right? So one definition of Aaron didn't change was Aaron didn't become arrogant having this position. He himself didn't change. He was still the same Aaron as he had been before. Right? Another definition of what does it mean to teach us that, that he didn't change is that every single time he did it with the same enthusiasm and the same love. Right? A lot of times you, you know, all of our mitzvahs are great. You know, every, every mitzvah is like lighting the menorah. Every single one is like lighting the menorah. But we go, okay, I'm used to that one already. So, you know, you do it with your eyes half closed. You know, someone gave an example that I, I, I liked very much. You know, it's probably enough to say you did it by rote, but just uh, this, this spoke to me. Sometimes you, uh, you get in your car and you drive, 
And then you can't believe you're already there. I mean, you were like on automatic pilot during the entire drive, right? That's called really doing something by rote. You know, and sometimes, I mean, you know, even the halachic sources deal with it to show you how real and common a problem it is, which is, which is, I, I finished benching and I don't remember if I benched or not. Or I said a blessing and I don't even know if I said it. What do you do then? Or even, they even have an issue, I david mincha and I don't remember if I david mincha or not. Now that's a whole service. Right? This is how real it is that we're not in touch with our own, with our own activities while we're doing them. You know? So, so there's, there are all sorts of things that you, you do or don't do in those instances. But, but um, anyway, the idea is that Aaron didn't change. He did it every single time with the same enthusiasm, right? Now here's uh, something, I mean, all these are deep, but this, in, in my book, gets a little bit deeper. What does it mean he didn't change? Is that he lit the light, and he lit a light that was the original light. He didn't change the light. Okay, let me explain. You see, when it says, when Hashem says in the beginning of the Torah, when God created the world and He said, let there be light, Right? That was not 100, 1,000%. Everyone agrees on this, by the way. This is not an interpretation. This is just basic, basic information. It was not the light of the sun or the moon when God said, let there be light. That came much later. The light of the sun and the moon is a joke compared to what that original light was. That light we call the Orhaga News, which means the light that was hidden. Because God saw, after He created this light, that this light, that, 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 that those who were not worthy were going to bask in this light. So He hid away the light, and where did He hide it? In the Torah itself, because it says, Es Ha'or, in the beginning of the Torah, the B'nai Yisaskar brings down, Es Ha'or, if you add up the letters of that, is Gematria 613. Right? God took that original light, and he put it into the Torah itself. So anytime you want to access that light, you just open up the Torah, you start reading the Torah, start learning it, right? So that light was put aside, and it's going to come back at the end of days. So, but it's hidden right now. Anyway, the bottom line is, so, so according to this commentary, I wish I could tell you who said it, according to this commentary, when it says that Aaron lit the light and he didn't change, is to tell you that the light coming out of the menorah was that original light, the light of the Or Haganus, right? That original light was shining. Unbelievable, right? Okay, so these are some, some of the more famous interpretations of what it means that Aaron didn't change, okay? But now, let's get back to this idea that Rib Shlomo is bringing down in the name of the Alexander. So what do we say? Let's, let's, re- let's remember the question again. How do you know when something's coming from God? How do you know when it's coming from someone else? When it's coming from someone else and they're, they're cutting you down, they're trying to change you in every single way, right? So, so what does it mean Aaron has to light a, the menorah? That means he has to put the fire, the fire of God inside the heart of every single Jew. To light a fire inside of every single Jew. And what does it mean that he didn't change? He didn't change a Jew. He didn't change you at all. He didn't tell you how much you had to change. He lit a fire inside of you so that you could change on your own. 
Because God wants you. He doesn't want someone else. He made you to be you. He wants you. He doesn't want you to be someone else. He wants you. But He wants the best, highest, holiest version of you. So if you have a fire burning inside of you, everything that you do is going to end up to be the right thing. The most beautiful way to serve God. Because you're using your uniqueness in the highest, holiest way. So that's what it means that He didn't change. He didn't change anybody. He just lit a fire inside of them. And then He allowed them to be the best version of them. You hear? Something special. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. It's an awesome Torah. So, so now, you know, Aaron experienced something. He was sad or depressed. You know, for me, it's a topic in and of itself. Just studying when the greatest tzaddikim became depressed. Because we, I can tell you at least three instances of depression. Now, I'm using that word. I know that's a very loaded word. You know, people have a lot of associations with what that means exactly. Maybe we can say sad or discouraged. And maybe that might be closer to it. But... You know, we see the greatness of the Torah and when you really learn the sources and everything like that is that you understand how every single person is treated as an actual person. This is, this is the greatness of the Torah. The whole mythologizing that takes place about people, you know, it, it does a great disservice because what it says to us is, is that Oh, that person was like, that person was holy, or that person was a, a tzaddik, and so, so he's not like me. And this is all sort of emotional logic. We don't necessarily speak out these words that I'm saying, but we experience them, and then we draw the same conclusions. And we say, because that person was so holy and such a tzaddik and so high, then, then the rules that apply to him don't apply to me. So I don't have to expect of myself the things that he accomplished, because he was a tzaddik, and who am I? So, so by, by mythologizing people, it actually, sometimes it inspires you to greatness, sometimes. But there's also a more insidious effect because you remove yourself from any sense of responsibility to become like that. So, so, so we have to be aware of this. So, so when you find out that a tzaddik became sad or discouraged or depressed... And people on the level, and I'll give you three quick examples, Aaron, Moshe, and Yaakov, you know. I mean, you're never going to get higher than that, right? And they became discouraged. That, that says to us, you know, if we become discouraged, that's normal. That's normal. That's expected. Then the question is, what do you do with that level of discouragement? That's the only question at that point. Not, oh, now I'm beating myself up for feeling like a lowlife. That's, that's, not, that's not the next step. It's, I'm discouraged. This is a normal stage. Everyone, even the highest, 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 highest people ever have gone through what I'm going through now. I guess this is a normal stage of life. Now what do I do with it? Now what do I tell myself? So, Aaron participated in the worship of the golden calf. Now, in the beginning, or the, the, in last week's Parsha, actually, 
all the heads of all the tribes are bringing gifts, dedication gifts for the Mishkan. Right? Wagons and other things. Jewels. Aaron doesn't have any role to play. Even though, ostensibly, he's the head of the tribe of Levi. Doesn't have a role to play. And he was depressed. All the sources say he was sad. I'm the lowest Jew ever. That's how Rip Shlomo put it. He said, Aaron was thinking about himself, I'm the lowest Jew ever. Because I participated in this horrible, horrible, tragic event in Jewish history, the golden calf, even though he was trying to avoid it and whatever it was, nonetheless, he was involved in it on some level. And now I don't have any role to play in terms of the dedication of the Mishkan. I'll give you another example. Moshe Rabbeinu. And I, I'm amazed that, this, no, that more people don't know this. I, I try to speak about this whenever I can, actually. I'm amazed that more people don't know this. And you can see it for yourself. If you think I'm making it up, look at the Ramban at the end of Parsha's bow. It's right there. You can see it with your own eyes. Okay? The Ramban brings several Midrashim that says that when Moshe Rabbeinu went to Paro for the first time and and Paro said, no, the Jews can't leave and I'm going to make it all worse for them. It says that Moshe left Egypt for a period of weeks or up to six months. He checked out. He went into the desert. He was like, I can't do this. I mean, that's ultimate discouragement. Ultimate discouragement. Actually, I think it's at the end of Parsha's Shmos. You can look there. Okay. So, um, and I'll give you another example. Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu is, right, Jacob, our, our forefather. All the tribes come from Jacob. So Jacob's really, Jacob's the foundation stone, you know, of, the, of our holy fathers, right? So he's leaving Lovin. He's been in exile, you know, dealing with the, the biggest cheat who tried to basically destroy the Jewish people before they got off the ground. Tried to eliminate the family of Israel when they were still on the level of a family. And it says, reincarnation-wise, he becomes Bilaam. And Bilaam tries to curse and wipe out the entire Jewish people. So this is like arch enemy. You know, he somehow gets out of that place alive in one piece with his family. And next thing you know, he finds out Asav, his brother, who's sworn to kill him, is waiting for him with 400 soldiers. And it says that Yaakov was stressed out. Right? To, to put it in modern parlance. Very stressed out. And he said to, he said, it must be, God, you've shown me so much kindness during my life that I don't have any merits left. In other words, like, you know, the concept like when you cash in your chips, like you were up a certain amount, you cashed them in, and that's it. You haven't got any chips left. So that's what Yaakov Avinu felt. He felt like, yeah, you know, he knew who he was. He knew he had done awesome things, but he had also been privy to awesome miracles. And he felt like, you know what? My bank account is at zero. And now I've got a guy 
with 400 soldiers who's ready to kill me. So, so that's Moshe Rabbeinu, that's Aaron, that's Yaakov. You, you, you think that you don't have permission to be stressed out or discouraged? You think if God sent those tests to them, he's not going to send them to you? Somehow, oh no, I... Uh, or, or, or if it happens that somehow there's something wrong with me? That that's, listen, let me, let me tell you something. If you want to get to 7th Street, right, and you're on 5th Street, right, you're going to have to go through 6th Street. Is that fair? So, there are certain stages that God tells us we have to go through in order to get to the next stage. And sometimes that stage, that street is called self-doubt. You have to walk through the neighborhood of self-doubt in order to get to the next stage. But do you know what happens to a lot of people? They get, okay, listen, this, I know everyone can relate to because this is like, happens to me all the time. You're driving on a certain highway, and you're told, the next, you take the, uh, you know, <laughs> I'll give you an example. This happened to me a few weeks ago. All right, this is, uh, this is California geography right now. Take the 405 north to the 5 north. Okay? I'm driving on the 405 north, and you can substitute whatever roads make sense to you right now. I'm driving on the 405 north, and I'm looking for the sign for the 5 north, and I don't see any sign. So, at a certain point, many drivers say to themselves, I must have passed it, or I must be going the wrong way. You're filled with self-doubt. You know that feeling. You know that feeling, right? You must be... And now you think, I'm such a dummy, because now, not only am I going in the wrong direction, I'm going further and further in the wrong direction. So now you want to turn around, right? But you know, sometimes if you hold on, you're actually going on in the right direction. So there were, I, I'm saying there must be, where is the sign for the 5 North on the 405? Where is the sign? And, and I'm late to take my kid to a basketball game, and I'm thinking, well, you know something, I got... I'm just going to keep on going. Someone who I trust told me the 405 North to the 5 North. I trust this guy. He told me he's done it. I'm just going to keep on doing it. And you know what? There was no sign whatsoever, but the 405 North becomes the 5 North. But they don't tell you that. They don't tell you that. So you know something? A lot of people, they're on 5th Street. They've got to get to 7th Street. But 6th Street is self-doubt, and you know what? They freeze. <laughs> they stop walking. Or they turn around. Or they sit down. Or they become drug addicts. Well, you know, it's like they fall apart. But if you understand that that's a stage that we have to walk through, and you've got to just keep on walking. Remember, I shared it with you at the beginning of the year. Something that, that came to me this year. It goes... Breshis, Noach, Lech Lecha. That's the name of the three opening portions of the Torah. Breshis, you're created, right? And what happens in Noah? The entire world falls apart. The flood comes. The whole world falls apart. What's the next parsha? Lech Lecha. Keep walking. Your world's falling apart? Mazel tov. Keep walking. Keep walking. 
And then all of a sudden you're on 7th Street. And it's like, oh, okay. All right. Then 8th Street, then 9th Street, then 10th Street, right? So it says, Aaron was depressed. And, uh, and now Rav Shlomo says something very beautiful. He says, you know something? During dark times, during dark times, there are two ways that you can help someone, right? One way, one category is you help them with their load. And it says that the, the princes of the tribes, their dedication gift was they gave wagons to, to carry, you know, all the heavy furniture of the tabernacle on. Okay? So, so that was a big help. It was a very great gift that they gave. Okay? They gave wagons. So, so Rav Shlomo says, you know, it's something to help someone carry a heavy load because it's too heavy for them to carry by themselves. So you're, you're helping them carry their load. That's a very great thing. He says, but you know something? Did you ever try to carry something really heavy when it was dark outside? And you know, in, in Torah, nighttime stands for bad times. Dark times, right? It's, everything is twice as heavy, ten times as heavy if it's dark outside, if you have to carry a heavy load. So, so Hashem told Aaron, light a light. Light a light. So when they have the light, the load isn't going to seem as heavy. Because you're going to turn nighttime into daytime for them. And how are you going to do that? By lighting a fire inside their heart. When you light a fire inside their heart, it's going to turn nighttime into daytime. And so even in the darkest times, that's how you're going to help them carry their loads. So, so there's another, another episode in Beloscha, in this Parsha, that's very, very mysterious. And it concerns the whole um, episode of of feeding the um, feeding the Jews. You see, Hashem blessed us with with manna. That was the or man we say in, in, in Hebrew. That was the the, the 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 bread that fell from heaven. Okay, and it wasn't actually bread. It was like um kind of like a a white crystalline substance. And the sources actually say that it was it was basically crystallized light from heaven. You know, and that it was actually that the angels eat light. And so that this was actually the food of angels that was sort of brought down into this world in sort of a way that we could access it. So it was very, very, very awesome. And by the way, you want to hear something interesting? It says that where the man fell um, was directly related to what a person's spiritual level was. Meaning to say that if it fell very close to your tent, then that was a sign that, um, that you know, you were, you were kind of in a good place spiritually. And if it fell very far away from your tent, and you really had to walk and work for it, then it's, uh, you know, that, that that was also a sign to you. Now, to me, that's sort of where the, that particular teaching ends. I... I'm just, this isn't from Rav Shlomo right now. I'm just giving you just background on, 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 on mana right now. 
So I, I was working with that idea and I realized what the implication of that was, was that every single day you actually got a report card from heaven. Right? Because if you walked out and, and uh, you know, you helped a guy the other day in some way and it's sort of like, oh man, there's my mom. Awesome. Okay. That was sort of like a sign to you. You could review what you did, what you were doing right. And you could go, okay, God liked that, more of that. Right? Or it's sort of like, oh, well, I'm used to getting my mom right in front of my, my doorstep. Huh? You know, I'm walking, 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 walking. It's like, huh, let's see, what have I been up to? You know, oh, yeah, I had that whole thing with that guy. Yeah, yeah. I better make peace with that guy. Right? So you could, it, it's a beautiful thing because in, in, our, in our life, it's, it's, it's harder for us to know. Sometimes things go a little bit off kilter. And we're trying to figure out, like, what is it, what is it, what is it, you know? So there in the desert, really, you were able to, uh, to really get a, um, some direct feedback from, from Hashem. So that, that, that was awesome. Um, so maybe, maybe this was one of the reasons why the Jews got tired of the manna. Maybe it was a little bit too much input. I don't know, I'm just throwing that out as an idea. But at a certain point, the Jews said, no more manna. God, we want meat. We're tired of this, this, this mana. We're tired of it. You know? And, uh, and, they, and they start complaining. Now, Rib Shlomo, they say they want meat. So I heard another time Rib Shlomo explain like this, that one of the hardest things in the world to do is to have your head in the clouds while your feet are on the ground. That's sort of the ideal way to go through life. You're very grounded, you're responsible, you're paying your bills, you're doing your job, you're on top of things, right? But at the same time, you've got this very expanded view of the world and you've got the whole big picture and they're both working simultaneously. It's a very hard thing to pull off. But that's, that's what we, we strive for. Feet on the ground, head in the clouds. And, and so I heard Rev Shlomo say one time that the Jews, we felt like our head was too high up in the clouds. And we wanted to be grounded. We, we needed that level of connection to this world again. And that's why we were asking for meat. Okay? But on another level, if you're being fed in the highest way by God, how can you complain? And how can you ask for meat? And how can you ask Moshe Rabbeinu for meat? Like, it seems so low and material and crass. Like, Reb Shlomo made a joke. He says, can you imagine going up to the Umshin of a Rebbe, who's one of the holiest people in the entire world, and saying, please, Rebbe, pray that my wife should cook me beans for dinner. <laughs> like, could you imagine, like, anyone asking such a thing? So, Reb Shlomo says that, that, A, it's remarkable that they ever asked the question, and B, that the, record, that the Torah goes out of its way to record that they asked for it, is even more wild. Because that should have been like some crazy thing that one person said, and let's say, we're, we're, we're not going to spend any time on that, you know? But nonetheless, you see that there's something significant about this. So if that's the case, Reb Shlomo says, obviously, obviously they weren't just asking for me. So he brings an explanation. Now, just to go a little bit further, he's going he's to explain it according to the Ishbitzer Rebbe, and Reb Shlomo says that he, he loves this answer from the Ishbitzer, and that if the Ishbitzer only gave over this one Torah, we would have to love him forever for it. Okay? So what's the, 
What is the teaching? So we just need a tiny bit more background than we're going to hear. Which is that Hashem says, okay, I'm going to give them meat. And even, I mean, they're in the middle of the desert. And remember, they're like a couple, two, maybe three million people in the desert. And they all want meat. So, I mean, you, you have to imagine this. Now, they had cattle, by the way. But if they had killed all the cattle, even that probably wouldn't have fed everyone. And they wanted a lot of meat. So, even Moshe... Now, Moshe has already gotten the Torah at Har Sinai at this point. Moshe's been literally in heaven. Literally in heaven. It was such an outrageous request that the Jews were making that Moshe says to God, how can you do it? Moshe says that to God. And God says, is anything difficult for me to do? You know, what, what I love about that exchange, by the way, is that nowhere do you see that Moshe was punished for that. In other words, you have instances where, like, for instance, i give you a, a, a very prominent example. Abraham, God says to Abraham, by the bris ben of Asarim, which, which was the covenant of the parts, that was like the initial covenant between God and the Jewish people. God says to uh, Abraham, I'm going to give you the land of Israel. That's going to be yours for your children. And Abraham says back to God, how, how, how will I know? And, and the, fact that, the fact that Abraham asks for proof from God, or seemingly questions God, the next psukim say, and your children are going to be in slavery in a foreign land for 400 years. So it seems, you know, I'm sure there are many, many explanations, but it would seem on the most simple reading of the text, that because Abraham asked and questioned God, you know, all of a sudden 400 years of slavery come down to the Jewish people, right? So that's a very intense connection. So you see, questioning God when you're at the highest, 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 highest level is not such a simple, not such a simple thing. And yet, you see Moshe go, how are you ever going to give them enough meat to feed them, God? And God says, no problem, nothing's hard for me. And God has no problem with the question, which means it must have been an absolute impossibility. In other words, it must have been, if Hashem sympathized, because you see Hashem shows no sense of anger to Moshe, if Hashem sympathizes with the question, you can understand the outrageousness of the request. And what does Hashem do? He sends them just these huge flocks of birds, Huge flocks of birds that come out of nowhere, basically. They all fly in from different directions. And they land there, and there are piles and piles of quail. Piles of them. That it says would feed them all, all of Israel for a month. Then what happens? It says like the leaders of that kind of like rebellion against the manna started eating the food. And while the food was still in between their teeth, they, they died. So, you know, kind of a very strange, uncomfortable ending to that story, right? At least for the leaders, right? Because because it seems that Hashem, you know, was angry, you know? That's what it would appear like. So how are we to understand this entire episode? So listen to what the Ishvitzer says. 
He says, you know something? You know when they were asking for meat, meat is basar. That's how you say it in Hebrew. Another way to say it is flesh. He says, you know what they were really asking God for? They weren't just asking God for meat, like a hamburger. They were asking for a heart of flesh. God, turn my heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That's what they were asking God for. God, I was at Mount Sinai. I experienced the giving of the Torah. And you know something? My heart is still a heart of stone. Please, God, I want to experience your greatness on a deeper level. I need a heart of flesh, which is an open heart. Remember, one of the great teachings from Rabbeinu Bechaya, that it says that when Hashem spoke to Moshe in the, in the, in the Mishkan, in the, in the oil moid, you know, the tabernacle, like that, that tent, that there were, on top of the luchos, on top of the tablets, there were two angels. And they had big wingspans, right? And there was a space in between the two wingspans. And it said that when Hashem spoke to Moshe, that the voice of Hashem came from between the two wings of the angels. Okay? That little opening where one wing ended and the other wing ended. There was a little opening about the space, the size of a heart. And Rabbeinu Bachaya says that when Hashem speaks to us, He also speaks to us through a similar sized shape, which is that opening, which is the shape of our hearts. Right? But you know what's interesting there? Just like that space was an open space, we need an open heart. And that's what it means, a heart of flesh, an open heart. We were asking God for an open heart. So why is it then that the leaders who campaigned for this, they started to eat it and they died? Because they weren't ready for that level of light yet. You know, you know, I know in my own life, I wanted to get married for a period of time so badly before I met my wife. And I look back on that period, and if I had gotten married to anyone at that point, it would have been a disaster. As much as I wanted it, as much as I felt I needed it, I was 100% not ready for it. So Hashem is very, very good. Hashem is very, very good. Sometimes we want something, and it doesn't mean we don't want it, and it doesn't mean that it's not ultimately a good thing that we're asking for. But sometimes we don't get it at that moment because we're not ready for it. But you see something awesome. You know, one of the heartbreaking things between parents and children, Rabbi Shlomo brings down is, you see, you have this period, they call it in psychology, they call it individuation, where a, a person needs to distinguish themselves and separate themselves from their parents. And they have to, they have to, they have to, they have to say, this is me. I'm not just an extension of you anymore. This is me. And sometimes there's a rebellion that goes with that. And uh, hopefully, hopefully you're just becoming like you as opposed to something that's not them. 
In other words, you want to be the best you, and you, you do have to make a separation to be the best you. But the idea is that you can be the best you without going counter to good values. You don't have to go counter to good values because they had good values. So then how do I become me? Well, if they had good values and I have to be different from them, then I have to have bad values. So that's, that's going off the track. You can become you if you have the fire inside of you. You can become the best you and you'll become a completely unique individual. And it's all you. But it's still in the tradition of them and everyone who's gone before them. That's the ideal. So listen to this. This is so deep. Reb Shlomo says that when a mother gives milk to her baby, feeds her baby, right? That that milk that a mother gives to the baby is like mana. All right? And when the child gets grown up a little bit more, the child says, I don't want the mana anymore. I want meat. In other words, as deep as this connection is, I need a heart of flesh. I need to be myself. I need an open heart. I need to experience this world on an even deeper level. Can you imagine? It's an awesome Torah. It's an awesome Torah. In other words, it's an, it's 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 it's... Just like getting from 5th Street to 7th Street, one of the stages that a person has to go through is making it their own. You've got to make it your own at a certain point. It's inevitable that we ask for that meat. Because as much as we're getting the mana from heaven, at a certain point we have to be the best versions of ourselves, right? We need something even deeper. We need something even deeper than that. Rip Shlomo says something absolutely awesome. He says, you know something? You see... You see, your mind, you, you, a person can't stop studying Torah. And they have to study Torah that, that's, that challenges themselves and where they keep on asking questions and they, and they never forget how deep and unknowable the world is. Rabbi Shlomo says the deepest, deepest thing in the world is I'm walking in Rio de Janeiro, right? He traveled all around the world all the time. I'm walking in Rio de Janeiro and I see someone on the street who I haven't seen in 20 years. He says, that's the deepest thing in the entire world. That this world ultimately, as deep as heaven is, right, as deep as the man is, which is like a heavenly level, this world is even deeper because it's constantly unknowable. But the problem is, is that we all hit a stage where we realize Listen to this. Listen to how perverse this logic is, but how, how it happens. Hopefully, we're deep. We're deep. Hopefully, we're deep. And we, and we realize how deep the world is and how unknowable the world is. And then when we get to the stage, we go, oh my goodness, this world is absolutely unknowable. And then what happens? Then what happens is you say, okay, I know the world is unknowable. <laughs> Do you see how it shifts right back to the tree of knowledge? Now, I'm back to knowing. What happened to this idea of my mind being blown and I don't know anymore? Do you see how I I, I reclaim it? And now that just becomes another thing that I know. You know, birds like worms, right? Fish like breadcrumbs. 
you can't know anything. They play football fall, winter. Right? It's, it's a state of ongoing consciousness. But the only way that you can stay in that state is to continue to, de- to delve and to delve and to delve and to delve. And then, every single thing is like unbelievable because you're receiving straight from Hashem. You know? It's like, wow, what is this? 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 One of my favorite, favorite all-time teachings When we leave this world, we're going to get the answer to every single question that we want. But there's nothing we're going to be able to do about it. In this world, we don't have the answers to our questions, or to all of them, but we can still do something about it. But in order to participate in a realm, in a dimension, where you can still do something... That requires, on some level, not knowing, also. But you get this awesome ability to accomplish things as a partner with God. That's the price. That's the price. But that the opportunity is extraordinary. Is extraordinary. Angels in heaven, it says, it says if someone starts to speak Russian horror, like something that they, they stop themselves from saying something, that they shouldn't say. They want to say it, but they stop themselves from saying it. It says that angels in heaven gasp in envy at what we've accomplished, at what we can do. Right? They've got revelations that we'll never have. But we can accomplish things that they absolutely can never do. And so, a simple kindness... Whatever it is, a smile, a hello, is not a simple kindness. It's not a simple kindness. Because you've just, whatever you've done, you've just steered the world in a slightly different direction. Okay, we'll stop there.